Barry Tesler, welcome to Jewish Latin Princess. What an honor to have you visiting us. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Barry, you are a financial therapist, the creator of the year-long course, The Art of Money, and the author of the new book by the same name, The Art of Money, A Life-Changing Guide to Financial Happiness. And of course, we cannot leave this very vital part of your life. You are a mamapreneur, and I love that term, and I might have to borrow it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so welcome. And let me just tell you a little bit of um, one of the core messages um, of Jewish Latin princes and things that we discuss here a lot is that the spiritual and the physical are meant to be integrated and we're not spiritual one part of our day and then physical the other it really is we're living in this very physical world and we're meant to be spiritual in everything that we do whether it be carpool or our conversations with our husband or you know um, a business meeting or writing that article or helping a friend, everything, it's, it's all integrated. And so, of course, we talk a lot about a lot of things, um, our talents in art and in fashion and in parenting and our loves and our desires. And one of the things that we talk about here is money, because money is probably one of the most important things we need to talk about, because money is such a big part of a Jewish life and of course of being spiritual here in the physical world. I mean, at the end of the day, we need money to to do our service to God. We need money to do mitzvot. We cannot give tzedakah without money. We cannot pay for our children's Jewish education without money. We cannot help other people without money. We need to buy kosher food. Whatever it is we need to do, it is a vital part. So I'm going to let you explore that money part in your own unique and very interesting um, way. But I want to start off with the subtitle of your book. Um, you've, you've called your book, The Art of Money, A Life-Changing Guide to Financial Happiness. And you use the word happiness instead of success or any other word. And I think that was a very intentional choice. And I was like, so happy with that choice. I use the word happy, but I, I was like so pleased with that choice. Not necessarily, I didn't catch on to it initially, but it was after I finally read the entire work and I was like, wow, she really nailed it on the head, at least from a Jewish perspective. You've really touched on so many aspects of what happiness is from that Jewish lens. For example, you touch on it being a long journey, something that we're working on probably all of our lives, right? It's not an instant fix. And we're going to talk about it a little bit later, but you demand of us and of others tapping into love and compassion and gratitude and forgiveness. And you don't ignore two very important components, which are giving, being charitable, both with our money and our time and our talents. And you kind of try to push us to live a life where we can actually use our unique God-given talents and abilities. And that's all really big stuff. And I really commend you for having achieved that. And all within the context of money. And this came from your work in financial therapy. So why don't we start with that? What is financial therapy? And, you know, as opposed to being a financial advisor or a financial planner, and why might one need to work with one? So I have to back up a little bit in that. And I also want to talk about the subtitle at some point, but let's talk about this first. So okay. Before I describe what financial therapy is, I need to just share a teeny bit of my journey because it helps explain how I found myself at the doorstep of awesome. financial therapy. And this is not work that I imagine myself doing. So when I was growing up, I was a, I danced mm -hmm. and I, I love dancing. And, you know, as a, as a little girl, I wanted to be a dancer growing up. Mm -hmm. Second was I saw my father in business. He was in real estate. And so I saw him as a preteen being a businessman and I wanted to be a lot like him, but we also were so much alike that um, we, we had a lot of tension and, and verbally sparred a lot. You know, he was right. someone who we loved each other dearly and there was, there was things that we had to work through. Mm -hmm. um, and we did, you know, we did. Right. So as a preteen, I wanted to be a businesswoman. And then as a teenager, I asked my parents if I could go to therapy. I wanted to understand myself better and on deeper levels. Yeah. And so then I do my undergrad 
um, at Madison, Wisconsin. I go right to college. I, there wasn't even a thought of, should I travel? What do I want to do with my life? I really didn't know. I was very confused. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched, <clears throat> excuse me, so many of my friends who knew exactly what they wanted to do. They go to college, they graduate, they start working in the corporate world and big jobs and marketing. And I'm sitting there going, I have no idea. I really do don't, you know, I really don't know yet. And 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 so what I and so my the other idea my father had for well one of the big ideas my father had for me was he asked me to learn Japanese for a few summers in a row okay. which I did and his plan was that I'd go to Japan teach English come home and work with him in business and real estate okay. and so I was on my way to you know finalizing a trip to Japan and at the last moment I realized I don't want to go to Japan that's not my journey that's not my path I want to go to Israel. Uh-huh. And I want to um, find myself and I want to know what it means that I was born Jewish. And I had many, many questions still. Okay. Um, and so I took a detour, um, the right path for, which was the right path for me. And I went to Israel for a year. And I, I was first living on a kibbutz. And then from there, I went to Jerusalem to study the Kabbalah. Mm -hmm. But when I was on the kibbutz, I was running every day. um, And I one day realized, well, I love dance and I love therapy. I love the field of psychology Mm -hmm. and I'm going to put them together. And I thought I created and made up the field of dance movement therapy, somatic psychology. Mm -hmm. And I didn't make up anything, you know, because (laughs) I get to Jerusalem and learn that there's a whole field of dance therapy and somatic body-centered psychotherapy and that there's a few graduate programs and one of them is in Boulder, Colorado and it's somatic psychology, dance therapy and it's at Naropa University which integrates Eastern and Western teachings and philosophy. Mm -hmm. And so I left Israel after a year and came back to Boulder, uh, to live in Boulder, Colorado to study, you know, to, to become a therapist. And I spent that decade training to be a therapist. And you have to be your own case study. Right. Um, you may hear my kitties. I have three of them in the room and they're running around not right now, problem, all excited. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, sometimes I take them out, but they're in here. So, um, so basically, I trained in my 20s to be a therapist and I worked in hospice both in the overnight care of people that were transitioning mm-hmm. from their body to the bereavement side. Right. And I also worked in the mental health field, mm-hmm. and I also led a lot of authentic movement groups. Okay. So by the time my student loan came due, um, I, I was on the track of becoming a therapist that would work on the topics of intimacy and relationships and body and food and sensuality and sexuality and and spirituality and and also death and grief. Right. And that's what I thought I would be working with. I mean, those are a lot. Those are a lot of areas and right. themes. But uh, you know, money was never in there. Mm-hmm. And when my student loan came due, is when I realized that they left this piece out of my graduate training to become a therapist. I did not receive a financial education in in college. I did not receive a financial education growing up in grade school and up in small increments on a practical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual level. It became such an obvious missing piece that my first thought was, well, I'll just run away, travel the world, and never have to deal with it. Okay, (laughs) so that's not my way, but I like to present myself with options. And I presented myself with that option, and then I said no, and I said, well, okay, what's my other option? One of my other options is to look at it straight on, head on, in the eyes, take it on, take it on um, in a way where I was taking on every other topic of my life. And so that's what I did, and I just started learning about my relationship to money from the ground on up. And as I started doing that, I started looking around and realizing that no matter what economic background people came from, no matter what religious or spiritual background, you know, no matter how much money, how little, we all had strengths around money, we all had challenges around money, we all had some layers of shame around money, we all had some confusion. Some of us had parts of an education. Um, some of my financial folks, they know the language of money, how to set up a bookkeeping system, how to read Excel reports and look at their patterns, but they don't know how to understand their emotions around money and on and on. And so, 
as I was getting into this, I, you know, started learning bookkeeping and I wound up having a whole bookkeeping business for other therapists and artists and coaches. And I did that as a transition. And then eventually I started um, integrating all of my previous training as a therapist in the way that I was able to hold space for people in all the deep places that we go to as humans, the ebbs and flows in life, the beauty, the pain, um, with all of these systems and practices that I was surprisingly falling in love with. And I kept saying, I need to learn how to merge heaven with earth. Right. That is so important to me. Right. So bringing the spiritual into the practical, the, you know, yeah, bringing absolutely. sacredness, bringing meaningful. Yeah, these absolutely. were all the adjectives and qualities that were important to me. So if I was going to create a money methodology or create a journey to take people on to help them become more conscious or healthy or savvy, right? all these words mm -hmm. um, or, uh, with a relationship to money, then, you know, it needed to be integrated on all those levels. It needed to be holistic. And I needed to bring in all these practices and tools that I was living in every other area of my life. But somehow I thought they were separate from money or my relationship to money. Right. right. And so I brought them all together. And so um, it, and to get to your, your first question about the, the tagline is a life changing guide to financial happiness. So, um, I'll back up one more moment, which is to say that I started then teaching my methodology in small little groups of 10 people over and over and over for years. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to 20 person groups. And the way that I teach is I bring the material and the themes to a community and I ask really good questions and I come up with handouts and exercises. And then as I'm doing the work with my group or my folks, then they start telling me what's missing or what's working or it's not. Right. And then it's created or it evolves and it matures and it has for 16 years, you know, and now I teach in very large communities online um, with a global community. But when we were putting together the book, and I knew the title was going to be The Art of Money, or I hoped it would because that was the name of my methodology and the name of the year-long program. We were going back and forth about the subtitle. And because I, did, I would never call it money success or money mastery. Now, those are fine words, right? Mm -hmm. And I want you to understand what having success around money means for you. Um, I have so many questions that I ask, and that's one of them. How do you mm -hmm. define this? Is, mm -hmm. is money success the amount of money you make each year or how much you increase, you know, what's the percentage you increase your revenue or does it have some to do with that? And also how much you give or where do you give each year? Right. Or do you have compassionate and loving conversations with your spouse? Right. You know, there's so many ways to define this and it's, and it's one of my questions, you know, how yes. do you define money success? So we are really trying to come up with what's the word, you know, and it was my publisher who came to me and said, your community calls your work life changing. We know that's clear. What about a life-changing guide to financial happiness? And it stopped me in my tracks because I don't usually use the word happiness, and yet happiness represented all the other words and adjectives and concepts that I teach about. Yes. And so it just worked. And it does. It definitely does. <laughs> it just worked, it yes. It definitely, definitely does. Um, so as you touched upon, your work emphasizes this inner the spiritual and the practical this inner and outer work which in a mystic jewish mystical terms would be the panemius the internal and the chitzonius the external and they are focused you do such a brilliant um job of of fuse them um seamlessly in your three faces of money work that you've coined and so tell us about those faces how do they okay. work and how do they interact and also, how do I interact with a bookkeeper and accountant and financial planner? <laughs> and how am I different, right? And right. and why do you why when you create a financial support team, eventually you want to have a few of us on your team, yes. right? And I collaborate with bookkeepers and accountants and financial planners and estate planners all the time. We're all different. We all have different backgrounds, experiences, specialties. One of my favorite chapters in the book is when I describe the differences of all of us and a list of questions to ask oh, when yes. interviewing yeah, mm -hmm. and hiring and just what are our differences, right? And because we all, we really, we, we all come from different backgrounds where a financial planner, let's say, will sit with you and give you a plan for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years for your future and help you with your investments, right? An accountant will help you come up with the best tax deductions, help you 
you with your business entities and and help you um w you know with your tax filings and all of that a bookkeeper will do your tracking of the numbers for you right. um and send you those reports so you can review your numbers and you know uh, make sense of what's working and what's not and they do all the tracking for you right, right. so there's all of that but Within that, there's so many pieces before you would go to a bookkeeper, a financial planner, or accountant. And so these are my three phases. The first one is money healing. Mm -hmm. I'll name them all and then talk about them a little. So it's money healing, money practices, and money maps. Back in the day, 16 years ago, when I first took a walk in the woods and said, what am I supposed to bring back to my community? What are the concepts? What is a framework? Um, what is the methodology to help my folks um, to financial happiness, right? I wasn't using right. that word at the time, but to financial health, savvy, consciousness, all of it, whatever your empowerment, um, all of those words. I Originally, it was financial therapy was the first doorway, the first phase, then values-based bookkeeping, and then life vision planning. So to simplify it, I now say money healing, money practices, and money maps. And the money healing work is where we begin, and it's the emotional, psychological work, and it's the understanding that most of us have a lot of emotions when it comes to money. So again, if, we, if most of us were not given a financial education on any level, right, from grade school and up, we're learning this as adults, and my community is 25 to 75 years old, mm -hmm. and then we're learning it, and for the first time, or we're passing it on to our adult children, or our young adult children, or our teenagers, or, you know, age appropriately, around six, seven, eight, you can start giving some money lessons, even five little ones, yes, right? absolutely. And, and so... We, we project a lot onto money. And so I want you to first understand what is your money story and what makes that up. So what did you learn positively and negatively, consciously and consciously as you were growing up? Most of our parents taught us a little bit about money, but they weren't given a good financial education or a complete one. And so there's a lot that, you know, we learn parts and pieces of it, certain ingredients. Um, what did, you know, what was our role compared to our siblings? I remember both my brother and brother and sister were saving money at the age of five or six or right. seven. And I always had desires. There were, there was a school ring at the fair that I wanted to get for my mother or there was candy or I just liked a lot of things. You know, I had a lot of interest. And so I was designated as a spender, but really I just had a lot of desires, you know, and um, there were a lot of interesting things for me. And so Somehow I was given that role. And, you know, I can look at my parents. My mother was more of the saver and the more of the frugal one. She still is. My father was more of a spender. And, you know, just to start to look at what did you learn from whoever raised you, what was the, their patterns, you know, who was paying the bills. I remember my mom paying the bills at the dining room table, and there was some tension around that. What did you learn from your family? Right. And so starting to understand where you came from, your parents, grandparents, even your lineage. So, you know, a lot of us had grandparents that had to leave or escape the country that they were born in. What was that like for them to start over? You know, money touches on our relationship to work yes. and our relationship to family, you know, and there's so much in there. So it's starting to go back. I don't like to stay in the past too long, but I, I do help people look at their relationship to money, past, present, and future. I feel that's how we're going to understand our money legacy mm -hmm. and, and where we've come from, where we are today, what's working, what's not, and what we want to be living into and leaving behind. And so I go back to our money, I go to our money stories first and strengths and challenges and shame and, and within that, um, there's a lot to learn because maybe we've understood our relationship to intimacy or food or body or all these other areas, but we haven't done that yet with money. Right. So this is where we start. And within it, there's a lot of tools and there's a lot of practices. My favorite practice is called the body check-in. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, it comes from my somatic psychology background and it's simply giving yourself a moment or inviting yourself to stop and pause for 10 seconds, 30 seconds, a few minutes and asking yourself to check in on a physical level and notice what's going on in this moment or on a sensation level. What are any of the sensations in your body or on an emotional feeling level? What's 
the feeling and emotion and and then on a breath level how deeply are you breathing how full or how shallow and i invite people to do this on a daily basis because there's all these daily money interactions that we're not even aware of okay. and we usually do a whole routine um and we have a different set of emotions that comes up some of us get very angry that we have to deal with this part of life some of us get very scared and anxious some of us get very sad because our needs weren't met as a child and we're still hoping for them to be met and somehow money is representing that for us and on and on some of us just feel so bored and want to fall asleep or just have 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 disconnected that money or a relationship to money not money itself but a right. relationship to money can be sacred can be filled with deeper meaning and so on, right? And used as as a tool um, for our values, for our giving, for what's most important to us, right? Yeah. And and so I start with a body check-in and I invite people to do a body check-in before they're going to have a money conversation with their spouse, maybe even during the money conversation because they can get heated. All our emotions can come up or our bodily reactions. And I, and, and until we start watching them with a witness or catching them, they're just going to be playing out as a routine, as a pattern. Right. And I want us to know them. I want us to know ourselves, to catch these, and to have loving compassion for ourselves. Um, throughout all of this to add gentleness to add love and to add compassion over and over and over because we all have these patterns and until we bring awareness and understanding they're going to just continue right? right so 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 doing a body check-in before you're going to go online to look at your numbers before you are going to go to your mailbox if you still get mail that way and sit down and pay your bills and on and on and on and and so for me, that's just the body check-in. That's just bringing more awareness and understanding so you can start to understand your money story and patterns and start to ask yourself which patterns are working, which ones are not. And there's a lot of work to do in the money healing, which leads to what's still, you know, hanging out from my past that I don't forgive myself or maybe my husband or my wife or someone else or a past relationship or my parents or maybe even God, you know, there's, mm -hmm. there's so many different levels of forgiveness and that's part of this work. And that's all in there before we move on to the money practices, which really for me is, it's all merging of heaven and earth. It's all, right. you know, but the money practices, the second phase is where we really start, um, how, you know, saying, how can I create a money practice? And if we're going to create a money practice, like a self-care practice, or even a spiritual practice, then we ask, what qualities do we want to bring? So whenever I sit down to do a money date, mm -hmm. I, li I light my candles. Right. And I get out my mocha or a warm tea or something that just, you know, I set up the environment so it feels good. And I sit down and I get out my bills and or I, you know, have a money date with my husband and we review um, a month or many months of numbers to understand where we're at, what's working, what's not, you know, where are we spending? Is it in alignment with our values? Is it not? And always learning and growing. So the second phase is all about um, learning the language of money and Either you learn a tracking system, a bookkeeping system on your own, like Mint or iBank or, you know, my husband one day just taught himself all of those programs. Mm -hmm. Now, for me, that would have never worked. I <laughs> needed someone to hold my hand and sit down with me and train me on QuickBooks and Quicken. And it changed my life because I didn't, I wasn't good at math growing up. And so I knew I was smart in many ways, but not in traditional math and science ways. So somehow I'd equated if I'm not good at math, then I won't be good with money or I would never be able to learn a bookkeeping system. Right. And that's not true. That's you know, I, it's not true. With a good teacher, they sat me down. He showed me how to navigate QuickBooks. It took a long time. I, I say we needed to stop and have some crying breaks and chocolate breaks mm -hmm. and and that's all true. And then when I started training people on QuickBooks, I would bring tissue and chocolate, you know, to, to the sessions. I and, want to as my teacher. <laughs> I don't do that anymore. But, um, I have great trainers that do, you know, and they bring the chocolate. The Good. Excellent. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> and so, you know, I needed to have someone hold my hand. And that's how I learned how to use one of these systems. And then you decide, do you want to learn it yourself? Um, do you need to hand, have a bookkeeper? Now, I do recommend that everyone learns how to do this a little bit, even for six months. Right. You know, because it's 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 your life that's being represented in, in these in these numbers. It's your story that's being told. And if you really have no idea what's going on, then you're missing a lot of really important pieces here. Um, and so I did my own bookkeeping for 12 years just because it was my it became my work and surprised me and I fell in love and it was such a wonderful practice. Every few days I would save my receipts and I would sit down and I would track them and it helped me stay grounded and, and, and um, with the practical and, you know, I would light my candles and, right. and, and it, it was a practice. It re I really created a beautiful practice around it. And then at year 12, I sent it over to a bookkeeper, Jess, and now she does, all of our bookkeeping and we get the reports every month so that we can review them. So the money practices is starting to learn the language of money. It's starting to learn a bookkeeping system or, or at least, you know, you learning how to track your numbers or you working with a bookkeeper to do that or your spouse, you know, doing the tracking. And then you sit down for money dates and money dates could be every day for five minutes at the beginning. It could be every few days for 20 minutes. It could be once a week for 30 minutes or an hour. And you really need to craft a practice in whatever way feels right and good and works for your life and your practice. I know a lot of parents, if they could get a money date with their spouse every quarter, they're in really good shape, you know? <laughs> now, in the past, before I had my child, I had money dates every few days, every week, you know? And then when we had our child eight years ago, you know, they became not as frequent, but we still have them. They're, they're still so important. Yeah, go ahead. Be before you move on to the next, the third um, phase I, that I want to point out about to listeners and readers about your money practices that is so unique is that when you start describing it in the book, you introduce it by telling us that, you know, now after we've learned about the money healing stage, we're, we're going to have to start embracing a little bit of rigor or some rigor mm. and some discipline. And, and this right away, you know, I could relate to because um, what you're what you're telling us essentially is from a mystical perspective is that we have to apply some gavura, some discipline, just like we apply love, we have love and kindness. And that's what we've learned in this money healing stage, right? Um, when we apply the rigor, the discipline, it has to be rooted in the love, much like when I take um, a sharp knife from my two-year-old child, and he really wants that object, but I know that shiny object is not good for him, right? I'm applying certain strictness, certain discipline, but it comes from a deep place of love. And in, in, and we understand in Judaism that love without boundaries, without discipline can be very destructive. So we can't, like you said before, we can't stay completely in the kindness stage. We can't just stay exploring our past forever. We have to, you know, temper that and still apply all that love, but really put some boundaries around it. And I think that that's a unique perspective because so many people, so many people who teach us about money either have a much more strict approach and, you know, you just have to focus on the practices and the numbers. And then this loving, tender, forgiving part that we all have to explore is kind of not there or, you know, or it falls to the other extreme. So I think what you're bringing is a very integrated um, approach. Um, I love hearing your description of it. And I love how you're bringing in the um, Jewish teachings into it. Thank you. Um, I, I love this. Yes, it's so important to me and has been from day one that it's integrated. And you're right. There are so many um, traditional financial management books all about saving and paying down debt and investments. And they're very formulaic. And they feel very, very intense in a way. This is how you do it, you know. Yes, intense. <laughs> intense and and not forgiving and loving. And um, it, 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 it feels hard. You know, it feels hard to ha you have to keep up with that. And it's a very precise certain way. And if you don't do it that way, you're not doing it right. And then there's this other approach that's more like, well, we're just, it's all loving. It's all about love. It's all about just calling in your intentions, right? And for me, um, th there is it. 
a deeper and wider place of, of integrating these. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, yes, boundaries are essential. So boundaries, boundaries are essential. Are yeah. Very essential and everything. Okay. And everything. So tell us about the last phase. So the last phase also, um, before I, I, I go into that, there is one piece of the money practices that we didn't name that is so important and it's the values piece. Yes. And, um, so in, while we're learning the practical parts of a money practice, um, and this path, you know, reading your set, uh, tracking your numbers, reading your numbers. I also knew from day one that I needed to bring in our values. And, um, again, because this helps us bring in the qualities and the concepts that are so dear to us and so important to us. And so, um, I have people do exercises of writing out all your values and then going to, your chart of accounts, which is just the bones of any bookkeeping system that includes the assets and the liabilities and the equity and the income and the expenses. It's, it's really just the bones of a bookkeeping system. Um, and this is where we name our categories. So very simply, some expense categories are mortgage or rent or groceries or travel, right? And those are fine names, but I wanted to... Um, uh, in, invite people to bring in their values and to rename things and to see if what would that do? You know, so from day one, 16 years ago, I had people start renaming their expense categories and some of their income categories and even some of their debt categories as an experiment to see what would happen. And so, for example, instead of calling it rent or mortgage, we would call it home. <coughs> excuse me. <laughs> Ooh, excuse me. No problem. Home or sanctuary or love shack. Mm-hmm. So I didn't come up with that one. That was when I was giving a talk with financial planners, um, 150 financial planners all wearing suits. And I asked the audience, give me another name for rent or mortgage. And she was um, recently married. And so she was calling it love shack, which was just very sweet you know, <laughs> and fun. So what, so, the, so it can be more playful to rename things. It can add a deeper meaning to something. So that's one example. Here's uh, two more. One is that someone wanted to add in creativity in their lives and, um, and have more of a creative life. And so she saw in her values categories this word creativity. But when, I, when we asked her, well, what does that mean? What would that look like? This was her in her 30s saying, well, I would... I would go back to my childhood and I would take some art classes or I would start singing again or be in theater again or be in plays. And, and so she added the category creativity and then she started tracking her numbers for the very first time. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the month, we would see that creativity was zero. There was nothing next to it. And that happened for six months. And then at some point we said, well, what's going on? And she said, well, I'm not doing anything about this, you know? And then we've got more specific. So it is theater classes. It is singing classes. It is art classes. And she put subcategories under creativity. And then she started spending her money. She started signing up for some of these classes. And so then she started tracking her numbers and seeing that she was actually, you know, representing this value in the way that she was spending her money. And, and then, you know, further down the road, she was in plays, she started being in plays again in her 30s, and it contributed so much to her life. One more that's one more example. So I worked with someone who, um, actually, I'm going to give a different one because this was an older man who sent a article into me. He wrote about this, about renaming. At first, he thought, there's nothing to this. I don't believe it. A name is just a name, right? Mm. Um, and then he said, but you know what? Because he was a financial planner or an accountant, and so he just was more practical. Okay. But he said, I was going to try it because my wife... We had a lot of medical bills for her um, because she um, had cancer. And so he decided to rename um, all of those medical bills to honor the journey that they had been on during all of her cancer treatment and the fact that she um, has survived that and has made it through and they have more years to their marriage and to her life. And so he renamed it, um, that debt in a way to honor, 
um, the medical care that she got and that she's alive. And so he renamed it and he said it changed everything about the feeling of it, experience when he would go to pay those bills. I don't remember exactly what he called it. Um, so you see that renaming can make things more playful like Love Shack. Right? right, but it can also make it more deeply meaningful and honor a, a transition or a time in someone's life that is um, harder or more of a challenge or more real. In a Absolutely. long life, we're, we're going to have beauty and and challenges. Right? Absolutely, I, I, I love this. I love this. Yeah. I love this. Yeah. And we actually started practicing this. Um, uh, first of all, we, my husband and I have discussed our value system and, and it feels very good when we go back to those numbers and we see that we've actually been spending on the, and we see that we're spending on those things that we actually value. Or if some money comes in, if, if we say, well, let's put it into this and we smile and we say, well, yeah, that's one of our values. So this makes sense that we would spend it on this. And then more recently we started renaming things. And I really believe in the power of, of, of this concept that you're teaching us. And even my husband told me, I mean, this makes so much sense as Jews because the power, the power of words we've were taught from a very early age, um, how powerful and how intentional we have to be about our with our words because yes. they create a reality this is the way Hashem or God infuses energy into the world is through words I mean it's it's a it's a really yes. important concept and I think it behooves us to give it a shot because it seems simple but it could it's it and, and it is simple but it reframes so much of this money practice and what could be you know dry or terrifying or boring for other people it just for people it could give it a just a whole different um, uh, feeling and a whole different meaning, right? You know, I, w I yes, I for me, I love simple. That is really profound right. when practiced or lived. And everything you're saying, I'm getting the chills. I feel as though you're bringing back to my childhood when I was at Jewish camp for the summers, and and when I was in Israel, and all the deeper. Jewish teachings, I they they got in, um, and I I wouldn't be surprised if so much of um, my methodology was informed and infused um, from um, you know learning Hebrew as Absolutely. a child, I and not, and I wouldn't be either. yeah yeah, and and preparing for my bat mitzvah yes. and reading you know practicing the Torah, and yes. there, I, I would not be surprised, but I haven't had someone tell me that or help translate. Um, um, even just the little tools or practices yeah, yeah. from a a Torah or Jewish or Kabbalistic perspective. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm I have the chills. Thank oh, you. Good. I'm so happy. <laughs> and I'll tell you something. The uh, the other practice that you already touched on that I love, and that you may be, you might be able to relate to this, and some of the other um, female listeners probably will. In the the body check in, I I my goodness, this is super powerful and. I found out, I've started implementing it into my money practices and whenever I'm having money conversations and opening my bank account and all those things. But I realized that in general, I'm so good at being in tune with my body when I'm pregnant and when I deliver my children. And of course, thankfully, I've been through four of those wonderful experiences. And I, I said, one second, I am so good at it. I'm. So, it comes naturally to me. I'm so good at being in tune with what my body's communicating when I'm pregnant and when I'm in labor. Somehow, in other areas of my life, when I'm not experiencing those those things, I kind of tune it out. And it's really helped me to see, but that to recognize that I know how to do this. So mm. if I know how to do this and I could apply it to other areas of my life and really be in tune when I'm having a business meeting, what is my body telling me, you know, or when I'm sitting to look at my bank account or when I'm at the cash register, it's really, really very helpful. And just, just realizing that I knew how to do this. Hello, I'm a woman. I really know how to do this. I've done it before. <laughs> so beautiful. So two things in that one is that, yes, I, I'm really trying to show people that, all these things we really know or that we practice in, in other areas in our lives, we really need to bring to our relationship to money. Yes. We can. And that's, that's what we need to do at this point. It's not separate. It really, really isn't. Right. Um, the second thing, though, is that, yes, a lot of women know this intuitively, innately, and then a lot of us have forgotten it. And it's, it's painful or, it's painful. We, you know, we, we, 
we were so we were taught how to not listen to our bodies or yeah. to yeah. be disconnected. So I love that you have this so innately from being pregnant and giving birth and you know, that you know that and so you can come back to that, you know, come back to that knowing. And for some of us, we have to, um, um, be taught it's where it is. It it is. Yes, yes, yes. But as women innately, intuitively, it is, we we are there. Um, it is there for us, right? You have to tap Um, into it and practice it and practice it. (laughs) Yes. And that, that there is this integration that if you're doing it, yeah, I've already said it. In other areas of your life, it, the, these concepts and qualities need to be brought to your relationship to money as well. Yeah. Right, right, right. <clears throat> so um, let's switch gears a little bit to parenting and money. Um, what you know about money, like you said, you've basically taught yourself <clears throat> or as an adult, you've seeked that knowledge from others. And now you teach it to others. And those are all things that we probably will all agree that should be taught to us from grade school, yet they are not. And um, unfortunately, the school system is not there. And in fact, like any other value that we want to impart on our children, we cannot rely on the school to provide it. We have to give it to them at home. It all starts from the home, from the parenting, the education that we that we bring into our home, our domain, right? And so I guess, Barry, how do you do this as a mother? I know Noah is fairly young. He's eight, but really eight is already an age where kids really start forming very unconscious memories and decisions about money. So how do we do it, Barry? How do we parent better in this area, better than our parents did, perhaps? (laughs) Well, first and foremost is that we need to do our own work. Right. You know, we need to start there. Um, Yeah, we need to, one, realize that there are a lot of missing pieces or missing ingredients with our relationship to money. It's time to learn them at whatever age because our children are watching everything. Mm -hmm. You know, they're watching everything. And so we need to start with ourselves first and admit we don't know everything. There's still things to learn and to start learning, you know, to start learning about um, our emotional relation, our emotions around money, our, our money psychology, to start learning new practices in the language of money that we d- didn't know before. You know, it, and it does take years. This works. Take this work takes years right. um, to learn. Every year, I'm fine tuning. Every year, I'm um, evolving. You know, and 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 getting better at my relationship to money. You know, I'm I'm updating my bookkeeping system or. I'm getting a new bookkeeper or a new financial planner and, you know, every year I'm adding in new things or I'm working on different parts on all levels, right? So number one, it's us doing our own work. And with couples, um, we need to do our work individually. And then when couples come together, there's usually, you know, we typically polarize and we don't, it's rare that two people come together from the same background, the same economic background, even if they do. They will earn and spend and save and give and invest in different ways. And that needs to be worked out and understood because until it is, you know, for many people, the first impulse is we feel we are doing it right Mm -hmm. and the other one's doing it wrong Mm -hmm. or we feel we know more. They know less. I mean, I'm, I'm totally generalizing here, but I see this a lot. We polarize. One person comes from an accounting background or MBA background, so they think because they read an Excel spreadsheet that they know everything about money. And again, that's not true. We all have missing ingredients and pieces. So when it comes to couples, um, I, I really like to work with individuals first, then as a couple. And helping them understand where do they polarize? Like, what's the story they've told? Um, One person is going to be in control of all the numbers and finances and pay all the bills. And the other person's not going to pay attention. You know, that could work for some time. But ultimately, I would want at least one person tracking. And then at the end of the month, you come in for money dates to look at the numbers together. So that you are, you know, you really are on the same team. Um, One person can't be ignoring this. Yes, if... Let's say you're raising four kids and, you know, maybe you go through a phase where you're not paying attention as much. But ultimately, I, you know, I want you both to be looking and making decisions together. But this is a path. It's a journey. Right. Right. And so there's a lot of work in there. Right. There's there's so much work and I have I've all there's a whole pathway for couples. I want couples to instead of looking at the numbers first, I have you start with story time. I have you go back to family of origin and tell stories. Again, what did you learn positively, negatively? What patterns are you still playing out? I have couples that have been married 10, 20, 30 years that learn new things about each other, 
learn new money stories that they had never heard before. Mm-hmm. And we, we should know everything or think we know everything about our spouse. No, we but recently there- went through this and we... Well, it was really eye-opening actually we've been married 12 years and we're yes. like oh I never knew you valued this so much it was wonderful actually <laughs> so that's with before we even get to parenting this is where I, I start you right. know I individually start to do your own work then couples so we start with story time first then second is the values is you know on the surface we come together because we have the same values that's part of why we fall in love it's not the whole reason but that's part of it and um, but the when we go to earn, spend, save, give, and invest, we usually we do that differently. Yes. And I always tell the story of my husband who came to me so many years ago, he wanted a, an expensive road bike. And I was pretty horrified because I don't spend my money in our money and big purchases like that. Mm-hmm. And so he made a case for me. I mean, lovingly, he came to me and made a whole case. This is what it's going to do for me, this expensive road bike is going to help me with my health. He had Lyme's disease um, at the time. And it's, you know, he, he, he provided a whole case of he has this much money to pay, pay, you know, to put down. He'll take on two more freelancing gigs. This was years ago, and he was doing that to finish the second and third payments of that. He gave me a whole case of how it would give him sexy points because he would, you know, be healthier in his body. It was, it was really, he gave me a whole presentation on why this book, this bike, um, was so important to him and why it was, it, it represented his value so much. Right. So that was what he did. And then on the other side was where I spend money, which is different than him in smaller amounts on acupuncture and massage and chiropractic and facial lotions Mm -hmm. and body lotions. That's what I love. And he at first could be horrified. You know, he doesn't understand that level of self-care. And we and I got to present my case. Um, at the end of the day, after two, we did a two-year tracking, and my little amounts added up to his road bike. I don't know, but you know, but it was it, it was a really good exercise. And what are my values? What are yours? How do we represent them? And how we spend our money? And can we really listen to each other on a deeper level and hear? And, you know, what the other person is asking for, what they say they need and want and why. And, you know, this was a longer conversation that all worked out. But that was in the context of what are your values and how are you representing them in the way that you earn or spend, right? Or say, and then the third phase for couples is who's on what, who's doing the tracking, who's paying the bills, who's moving money around. And then what, you know, when are you having money dates as a team, as a couple, monthly, quarterly, yearly? And, you know, the fourth phase is really getting on the same team. So that's a whole journey that I help couples learn how to do because, again, we were not given any of these skill sets. And so couples don't even know how to have money dates without fighting or getting upset or having their emotions you know, come up so strongly. So, you know, I, I'll have a couple do a money date in the first 30 minutes, each person gets 15 minutes to talk. And the other person just sits there quietly doing their body check-ins, just listening. And maybe your money dates are just 30 minutes, 15 minutes each of story time. And then you practice and you build from there. So that's a little bit about couples. And then to even get to parenting, you know, my, my publisher had said they wanted my second book to be about um, money and in kids and parenting. Yeah. And I said, no, because <laughs> I said, my second book needs to be about couples, right. you know, and I have an eight year old, I, I need to get my child to 18. And then I could write a book uh-huh. about that's how I, you know, I need to live it and experience it. And so with Noah, our son, you know, from about the age of three, four, um, I've been doing little mini money teachings that were important to us. And, and that I was doing my best you know, to convey to him to do differently. And I wrote, we've written one blog post that's pretty thorough and long about parenting and money from the age of three to seven. And what are the, what are the concepts that I'm trying to teach him, you know, and three to four, I think it was, we would go into target and my son wanted everything, everything. And I didn't want to squash or diminish his desire Mm because that's all, you know, and so we would just do a wish list and we'd go through the aisle and I, I wasn't working as much. I had cut my hours down at the time so I could be with him more. Well, as soon as, you know, I, I really decreased my hours once I had him. 
And then I've added as, as he's gotten older. And so we'd go down the aisle and target and, and he would just say, and that I want that and that and that. <laughs> and we added everything to his wish list. Right. And then I think at four or five, we started working on um, discernment a little bit and going into a store and picking two out of three pairs of shoes or one out of three pairs of shoes and having the conversation of which ones are we going to use more, enjoy more, you know, helping him make a good money decision at five years old. And, and then we started moving into savings a little bit Mm -hmm. and, and then grandparents matched. If he could save until his birthday, the grandparents would match you know, the savings amount. And we're doing that. I read it in your book and I loved it. Yeah. (laughs) So little things like that. I feel as though we're figuring this out as we go. Um, We're stumbling along the way. Um, We are doing a little bit of allowance and he needs to then contribute to the household and do some things in the house, like put away his clothes. And, uh, you know, there, there are things that we are really figuring out that piece as we go. I do know, and this came from my community, um, once they get to about 16, 17 years old, there's a book that I can't think of the name. It's an old book. Mm-hmm. But the concept is that you give your child a year worth of living expenses. You figure out what, you know, you look at your numbers and you go, okay, this is about a year of expenses for my child. Mm-hmm. And you give that, you create a bank account and you give that to them. And you ask them to manage their money. Um, for a year and they have to learn you know, how wow. to do that and you get to watch their spending choices their saving choices do they spend it spend it all and then they're out of money or do they actually save or what are their values and where they spend and it's something that we're looking forward to doing when he gets older so that's something on the horizon wow wow I, yeah I, I hadn't heard of that book I'm gonna I'm gonna research that um but yeah I mean like you said uh, it really starts with the couple and and mothers kids are listening and absorbing by osmosis everything every little interaction the body language that happens between the couple when we talk about money or spending or vacations they they just they just they absorb it so with the modeling and you know when we're learning about these things and reading about them and improving and growing they see that and that's that's a good thing for them to see that we're we're constantly growing and trying to be better and communicating better. So in and of it, yes. that's, that's a huge help already, right? Yes. Right. Yes. Um, Mary, take me a little bit to um, the, there's an episode of incredible divine providence that brought you to where you are today. You describe that seemingly coincidental encounter and nothing is coincidence. Everything is this divine providence. And we talk about this here at Jewish Latin Princess a lot, but you had this encounter in the middle of the road with the white truck driver who pointed you in the direction of Tamara Slayton of blessed memory, who you describe as the catalyst for the birth of your entire method of money work. And when I read this, I said, oh my goodness, if this is not Ashkaha Pratit or divine providence, I don't know what, what is. I mean, this was just no coincidence. It really was divinely orchestrated. What was that encounter? And, you know, tell us a little bit about it. I will. And I'm having one other memory that I just want to name. That was also, I think there's, you know, it's all connected. And it was when I was, so I was in Israel when I was 23. And then I went back when I was 28. Okay, And I, that's right when I was finishing graduate school, and the school loan came due. And, um, you know, it took me two years to finish my master's thesis because it was 150 pages. And <sighs> that, I, and so I took two years off to work. Uh-huh. Um, and then because I started graduate school at the age of 24, I felt very young. And then I, I finally finished my thesis. You know, I wrote that. It was hard. <laughs> it was a lot of chocolate eating. And then I went to Israel um, and it was right around the time that I was graduating. I just graduated and the school loan just came due and I went to Israel again and I went to Sfat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember meeting with a rabbi there and I was asking him about my life and I was trying to understand, should I, I still go just study alone? You know, should I just 
come to spot and live and study or, you know, and I remember him opening up the Torah. This is my memory. This was a long time ago, 20 years ago, 21 years ago. And no 20. And I, I was asking him about my life and he opened it up to a passage that was all about my work in the world and that my path was to do my spiritual work through my through business. There you go. And yeah, and through <laughs> through work and that that was going to be my path. It surprised me. It really surprised me. Um but here I am, you know, so many years later and with a business for the last 16 years. Right. And and so I'll take you to this moment um in California. So I'm well let's see. I'm living in Boulder. And I decide that I'm going to do an apprenticeship in ethnic movement in this small town in California called Sebastopol, California. Mm -hmm. And um, I needed a change. And so I made plans to go to Sebastopol, California. And um, I had just met my now husband. And I said, well, I'm on my way to California. And he said, well, I'll, I'll come with you. And we had only met, you know, we had just met a few months and he came with me. And um, so I wound up hanging up these little dinky flyers about my bookkeeping business and my bookkeeping service. And so I hung up flyers around town and I started getting clients that way pretty quickly. Uh, people just were throwing their books at me. They could care less <laughs> that I had a master's in psychology. They didn't even know that. They just were like, please take this Somebody from me. Somebody take this off of me. <laughs> Someone do this for me. And so I think it was either my, it was my first or second client. Uh, I was there really just three weeks, let's say. And I was driving to this new client. And in Sebastopol, California, it was a lot of dirt roads. It was a lot of apple orchards. So I'm on a dirt road. And at some point, um, I see that there's, it's a small dirt road and that there is a white truck in the middle of the road and I can't go any further. And so I have to stop my car and get out of my car and go over to the side of the road to ask who, you know, ask what's who's, going what's going on and whose white truck is that? And can you please move it so I can continue on my path, you know, and I get out of my car and I go over to the side and there's some men working. And, and then I look a little closer and it's a man with white hair and with like a mustache. And I look at him and I realize as I'm about to ask him if he can if, move the truck that I know him and his name is Warren Bellows. And Warren Bellows <laughs> is someone who um, six months before had been in Boulder, Colorado mm -hmm. and was doing uh, an acupuncture training because um, he was a very well-known acupuncturist and was doing a training with his students. And one of his students I was going to see as my acupuncturist and she had asked if I wanted to get a free session and be a model in front of the room, you know, mm -hmm. in front of these 20 training students. And I said, yeah. So six months before that, I had been in the front of the room with 20 people and Warren had done acupuncture on me. Um, and it was one of the most incredible life-changing sessions I had ever had. And, um, my husband Forrest was waiting outside, um, uh, basically in prayer, just holding space for me while I was in the session. Right. <laughs> and, and it was all, you know, and, and so here I was in Sebastopol, get out of the car, walk up and it's Warren Bellows. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't even know he was in Sebastopol on and on and on. And I started talking to him and he said, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm in, I'm in, I I'm here to, and I'm doing, I'm, I'm doing a bookkeeping business right now. And he was looking at me funny, like what, you know, cause he knew I, I had a master's in psychology and, and then we just start talking and he said, Oh, you need to meet Tamara. Tamara of Grayton. Mm -hmm. And he said it a few times and I didn't know who Tamara of Grayton was. And then at some point he said Tamara Slayton. And then I just, you know, got the chills, was stopped in my tracks and realized that I am someone who gets rid of almost everything at that time because we moved out to Sebastopol, California in two little cars with all of our belongings, but that I had kept a, a newsletter from Tamara of Grayton, from Tamara Slayton, about cycles. And um, one of her original newsletters from years ago that I had just kept because it was so, she wrote about rite of passage work. 
she wrote about um, menstrual health. She wrote about cycles. She she just was an incredible woman. And, and so um, Warren told me I needed to meet her and Tamara Grayton. And when it finally hit me, Tamara Slayton, then I knew who she was because when I was writing my thesis, um, a woman on my committee had given me her newsletter. It, it just it was like wow. all of these moments. And so I look up Tamara. I go to see her. She makes time for me immediately. Amazing. And we begin our mentorship and friendship. And Amazing. yeah, and I got to be with her for the last two years of her life as she was, um, she was dying of cancer. Right. And we, you know, she saw very clearly um, what I was trying to integrate in all of my past training as a therapist with all of these, um, you know, the systems and language of money, because she had studied every area of life. And then the last few years, she started setting economics and realizing that um, all her, her folks knew were getting in touch with their calling or what they came here to give or their unique gifts. And, and yet the, the blockage kept being their relationship to money. And so that's what she was studying the last years of her life. And so her and I together were, you know, she, we were each really supporting each other um, in so many deep and profound ways. And she, she was the one to say, you, 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 you're going to give a talk and I'm going to bring the people. And so that's when I went out to the woods and asked, what am I supposed to bring back to my community? Um, and that's when I came up with the, or was given the three phases of my methodology. Wow. Wow. Amazing. Amazing, Barry. I mean, really. Um, all right. So let's wrap it up with some JLP fill in the blanks. Um, and this is where I'll give you a statement and you complete it with the first thing that comes to mind. Obviously, there's no right or wrong answer. It's just very unique and personal. Um, so let's do it. Okay. okay. I am Barry Tesler and I feel most spiritual when? Um, I am Barry Tesler and I feel most spiritual when I'm on my mountain. Um that I hike on almost daily. And now when I'm having family dinners, mm. a new practice that my family is now having at six o'clock mm -hmm. every day, lighted candles, no electronics. Oh, wow. Talking. Sounds, sounds like Shabbat. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's taken me only eight years to realize I really wanted this. And I asked my husband about a month ago, and we've been practicing it almost every day. Um, and it's really beautiful. It is. It is. Yeah. It is. Um, my favorite mitzvah or one that I connect with the most is? Hmm, let me see. Um My favorite mitzvah or one I connect with the most is when I spontaneously give to someone um, that needs, needs um, money or resources um, um, during a challenging moment in their lives. Wow. wow. Um, yeah, for example, um, a one of my son's teachers had a stroke, and um, I set up a GoFundMe campaign, and our whole community gave her um, money for a few months right. um, to live on. Yeah. Right, right, right. And, and it's so interesting. Every time I do this, I, I, I realize that it almost inevitably the whatever a person says is so connected to what their life's work is and obviously look this is you know that that act of giving and of teaching us how to give and from our financial resources you on a personal and spiritual level you connect with and this is what you do so mm -hmm. um are no coincidences okay my fondest sweetest jewish memory is <laughs> There's so uh okay I'll, my fondest jewish sweetest memory is um the one that's coming to me right now is really shabbats um when i was growing up and in the summer 
the camp that I would go to and everyone would dress in white and all the boys and girls Mm -hmm. would be in white and they would be singing Hebrew to us and coming towards us. And after each meal we would sing in Hebrew. Um, So it's, it's my childhood outside in these nature camps um, and all of the Hebrew and the song and the prayer that happened there. Right. When I give tzedakah, charity i like to give to um it, it's really these spontaneous moments right. it's it's um you know a gofundme or someone has a uh is an herbalist and is trying to create um a bus that she can live in and travel around um to do her herbal teachings right. you know you just it's it's um yeah, I, 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 that, that's how it happens for me. Right, responding to that immediate need that somebody yeah. has, right? Mm-hmm. All right, finally, I am Barry Tesler, and today I am, I am most grateful for. I'm Barry Tesler, and I'm most grateful for um, my family and my life. Wow, beautiful, beautiful. And to all my readers and listeners, please go check out Barry's work at barrytesler.com where you can learn about the one-year money course, The Art of Money, and about her book, of course, which you can now buy on Amazon and anywhere um, books are being sold, and The Art of Money. And I really think this is going to be a classic and a book that you're going to go back to time and time again. At least I know I am. I mean, I've already underlined and I have it ready for my husband to read and my accountability partner, a good friend of mine to read and for us to share. So, I mean, thank you, Barry, for putting this out into the world and for coming and sharing with us. I really, really appreciate it. It was such an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for making me cry (laughs) and for just a wonderful interview. Of joy, I hope. Oh, yes, 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 yes. yes, All right. All right. Thank Thank you. you.